Chapter 5 Not, quoth he, that I do mistrust her virtue, but I must freely tell you, she is a woman. There lies the suspicion. Francis Rabelais, Gargantua and Pantagruel, 1534 My roommate sits at the kitchen table, half a summer sausage on a plate before her. I clear my throat. <clears throat> Mona? She cuts off another slice and looks up, mouth-chewing. This afternoon, Dr. Ellsworth offered me a room at her house, and, well, I accepted. What? I'm moving out. My rent share is paid through this month. I told the landlady to keep my half of our deposit, plus last month, too. That'll give you more time for finding someone else or a smaller place. Her lips twitch. How can you do this to me? I'm sorry. You know as well as I do, this just can't continue. What do you mean? It's something I gotta do. Good luck, Mona. I don't believe in luck. I'm a Christian. Well, I wish you good fortune, then. The next day, June 8th, 1999, I catch a bus to Dr. Ellsworth's house and inspect my new quarters. It's a room in the basement pantry that escaped notice earlier. We enter through a folding glass door she grandly proclaims came from Portland's old streetcar line. I see a long chamber dominated by an immense model train table. This diorama fills almost half of it, wide-gauge tracks set on a plywood base raised up on sawhorses. Engines, boxcars, and tankers from the Canadian National Railway ring a papier-mâché mountain and miniature plastic forest. At the other end, deep shelves contain enough canned food and preserves to last a family through many winters. In the middle is a twin bed dressed with crisp flannel sheets and a down comforter. My professor fumbles with her keyring and removes one. Take the car, Ross. Can you transport everything? No problem. There really isn't much. I drive back to the Gleason Street apartment where Mona sits in our old living room, eyes red and gaze bitter. After I carry out the first couple boxes, she retreats to her bedroom. The door slams closed. Her television wails from within. Back on Tolman Street, I park, lug a crate of records in both arms up to the front entryway, set it down, and try the door. It's locked. I rap sharply. Nothing. I ring the doorbell and wait several minutes. How odd. Just an hour before, my professor entrusted me with her vehicle, but not house keys. I knock repeatedly, to no avail. A light breeze rustles through the rhododendron leaves. Abruptly, the door creaks open. Turning back, I see it held ajar, and in the gap stands Dr. Ellsworth. Stark naked, soaking wet, flesh mottled and gray. She blinks at me through thick spectacles. Neither of us says a word, neither moves. A small puddle forms drip by drip around my professor's bare feet. The spell breaks as a strident female voice sounds from behind me. Babette, stop making a disgrace of yourself and get inside! Do you want the whole neighborhood to see? I look over my shoulder and see a roundly built young woman advancing up the walkway. Blonde hair cascades round her pink face. At this interruption, Dr. Ellsworth draws back. Quickly, I grab my crate, duck down, and slip by her into the house, heading straight downstairs. I sit on the bed and listen as indistinct voices converse above. After several minutes, they fade, but not until much later do I venture back to the main floor and continue unloading. This is no good, but I can't turn back now. At least Mona never ambushed me without clothes. If Dr. Ellsworth plots a seduction, this will be one brief stay. For now, though, I unpack. 
An elegant credenza against one wall is stacked high with gold-rimmed china. I carefully clear the service and store it in the double cupboard below. This makes room for my old Mac and printer on top. I line up record crates in a long row beside the train table. There is enough space for several boxes of clothes at the other end. Above the bed hangs a large tapestry with an Aztec eagle design. I tack up several band posters beside it, restack enough unlabeled murky glass jars on the shelves to place my ceramic skulls and gargoyles alongside them, then pause. The room already feels comfortable. That evening, my professor, now wrapped in a terry cloth bathrobe, calls me upstairs. Pieces of beef are lined on the cutting board and she slashes away, wrinkled hands flying as she chops carrots and onions. Canned vegetable broth stands on the counter. I am sorry if I gave you a start earlier, she chuckles. I was taking a bath upstairs and all of a sudden heard your furious racket and became afraid you might leave, so I ran to let you in without thought for anything else. Uh, some people have suggested my modesty lacks on occasion. All outrageous lies, of course. Dr. Ellsworth tips the ingredients into an orange enameled pot. It begins to heat on the stovetop and a wonderful aroma rises. My professor taps her wooden spoon against the rim. She sprinkles in some fleur de sel and inhales the steam extravagantly. Oh, that woman you saw earlier today is my granddaughter who came by to pick up some final things. Until last week, she lived upstairs. We sometimes had our little tiffs, but one day after a terrific row, she said, You are too much. I'll have you committed. Well, I immediately called my attorney to discover if this could be possible, and with absolute horror found out it might, depending on how long a relation lived with me. That is why I asked her to leave. Once dinner is cooked, we sit down at the kitchen table, bowls of meaty stew before us. After two enthusiastic gulps, she flings her spoon down with a clatter. Broth speckles the front of her robe. What I would like from you is help with the garden, housework, and some other things which are now difficult for me. In return, you may stay the summer and decide what to do next with your life. This arrangement will be good for both of us, we? That sounds excellent, I agree. Some persons have criticized my driving. I'm sure you observe no such difficulties. I pass her a skeptical glance. Dr. Ellsworth exhales slowly. <sighs> Do not bother with an answer. I see it on your wretched face. True enough, last week I backed into my neighbor's truck across the street again. He really possesses no sense of humor about that monstrous thing. Perhaps on occasion you might drive me to appointments or to school as well. Over the next several weeks, we settle into a routine, and I assist Dr. Ellsworth as much as she requires. Her most desperate need is a chauffeur, and soon I motor her almost everywhere, school, doctor's office, or the grocery store. High-strung and impatient, she abandons English fluency during intense moments. Out of necessity, I soon learn basic French directional instructions. From the passenger seat, rings flash as she gestures and cries out, A la gauche, trop tard, and most commonly, vite vite. My professor often requires assistance with her wardrobe, but I discover her inability to match articles of clothing is not carelessness, but colorblindness. Oh, I loathe that term, she barks. Colorblind? It's an accusation, as though there's something wrong with me. My vision is perfectly fine, only not seeing the same colors as everyone else. The French word is so much better. 
It's simply called Daltonisme, after a scientist named Dalton who studied it. Her mouth arcs downward. However, as with many things, how I perceive the world is not consistent with majority viewpoints. On occasion, people suggest colors I find entirely appropriate. In fact, clash. Perhaps you could arrange my closet so I might dress with greater ease? Certainly, I agree. Her eccentricities amuse me more with every passing day. Dr. Ellsworth's chambers are in the master bedroom upstairs with blood-red carpets and striped felt wallpaper. She chatters away from an ornate chase lounge while I organize her large closet, segregating easily confused colors on hangers into defined sections. There are many tops, from professional blouses to festive sweaters in vibrant orange and hot pink. The skirts are more straightforward, almost all shades of black, blue, or gray. Underneath lay piles of shoes, mostly flats or low heels. These I match together and line up. My professor inspects the new system and nods approvingly. Perfect, she says. I discover her untidy mop of hair is a wig. Rather, a succession of wigs. Seven foam mannequin heads are glued to a top shelf, each with consecutive days of the week scrawled along their base. Blank eyes stare from beneath rows of iron-gray bangs. Dr. Ellsworth views clothing as an inconvenience to be tolerated only in public. But however nude my professor stalks around the house, she is never without wavy curls atop her head. Sometimes, after retiring for the evening, she calls me from atop the stairs, and I see a completely bald skull silhouetted against light from her bedroom. While friendly, Dr. Ellsworth keeps a modest distance physically, and my initial fear that she desires more intimacy evaporates. Our life pattern grows quite agreeable. We eat together, often out at elegant restaurants, and she pays every bill. A large satellite dish in the backyard streams French news and other foreign networks. Everything possible she experiences in French, from Quebecois television broadcasts to the color ID setting. A monthly newsletter from Reed College lists plays and lectures, which we regularly attend. Her social life far eclipses my own, and the telephone rings at all hours. The early morning and late night calls are usually from France. One night, she laughs loudly and breaks off as I pass through the kitchen. <laughs> My cousin in Pont la Nouvelle just called me her little rat, she explains, the receiver covered with her palm. Oh, it's a great compliment. Several times a week, we view films upstairs, selecting from her vast VHS library. Just off the master bedroom is a parlor with comfortable chairs, a couch, and one wall completely papered in forest motif, with leafy branches wall to wall. Her VCR and television sit beside an ornate easel. It holds Renoir's classic impressionist painting of a young blonde girl surrounded by flowers and greenery, blue eyes staring vacantly. Over multiple evenings, Dr. Ellsworth shows me a BBC series adapted from Balzac's 19th century novel Cousin Bet. She sits on the edge of her seat and cries out with delight at every devious turn by which the title character tries to bring about the destruction of a family who wronged her. At one point near the conclusion, Cousin Bet's victory seems complete. My professor scowls in sudden irritation, lunges forward, and presses stop. There we are, she informs me, arms folded obstinately. That is the end. Well, at least it should be. I stare in surprise. She sighs. All right, we will see it through to the true conclusion if you insist. But I warn you, these next minutes are unforgivable. 
I hope Balzac roasts in the deepest circles of hell for ruining such a perfect story. We continue, and as predicted, Balzac betrays Babette's heroine at the last minute. I wish I knew where to permanently delete that, my professor grumbles. See, you must understand women, Ross. We are not so physically strong as men, and therefore other means must be found for survival. An ideal female might not even stab her opponent, but should persuade someone else to use the knife. That is why I love these tales, where women achieve their goal by any means. The war against our sex is total, and it invades every area of our lives, even language. She ejects the videotape and feeds it into a rewind machine. The device cries in shrill dismay as it whirs. As far as gender bias goes, English is not so bad grammatically. The words, however, are still deplorable. Start with what you study, history. Well, that's easy. The story of men and what they say happened. Then a pen. Well, that is literally a penis. An ink-suffused penis, which a man uses to record skewed versions of the past, while his biological penis writes the future through women's bodies. Whereas the word vagina? That means nothing but a sheath for a sword. So I take a great pleasure when Cuisine Bet appears triumphant, and it nearly kills me that she fails. The machine squeals to a halt. My professor removes the tape and slides it into a case on the coffee table. If you will take the time, next I might show you a multi-part series called The Playing Mantis. Oh, it is unparalleled torture. Two women can cut plot after plot against one another, using every wile and trick they possess. They exploit the men in their lives with absolute malice. Afterwards, you will never trust a female again. I grin. Past experience suggests I may still take the chance. Dr. Ellsworth smiles. Then, perhaps, Belle du Jour. It is in French, with no subtitles, but I would translate for you. You might find this slow, but the conclusion is worth it. Such a tragic story. Or maybe instead, The Last Seduction, a film more current and in your own vile language. That would be delightful. It depicts a woman who achieves her ends through chicanery on a level it makes my pulse explode. Oh, just thinking about all of these marvelous stories gives me shivers. There are so many more as well. I am certain we shall have splendid times together. Our Daily Mail, which I pick up after it drops through the front door slot, contains many peculiarities. My professor subscribes to several periodicals, from the Canadian newsweekly Maclean's to the French Le Monde Diplomatique, plus cultural publications from Germany and Russia. I observe nearly half are addressed to Albert Ellsworth, and the rest Elizabeth Ellsworth, Bobby Ellsworth, or Babette Bonafont. <laughs> that was my husband, you see, she explains with a dry laugh when I inquire about Albert. He died many years ago. Some people even suggest I had him murdered. She licks her lips in satisfaction. What would you like me to call you? In France, I was known as Babette, which translates to Elizabeth. But the use of several different names has often proved valuable for me. Are you aware that when the French first heard English, they described it as a sound like the barking of dogs? She grits her teeth. And now, I must speak it every day. From that point on, I call her Babette. 